I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. This is What's Next. I'm host Thomas O'Neill White, and joining me today is author and founder of Sickle Cell Warriors of Buffalo, Juanita McLean and Dr. Stephen Ambrusco, the director of the Sickle Cell and Hemoglobinopathy Center of Western New York. He is also a, a pediatric hematologist and oncologist with a clinical focus on sickle cell disease with UBMD Pediatrics at Roswell Park Oshai Children's Cancer and Blood Disorders Program. Thank you both for being with us today. I know that's a lot, <laughs> that's a lot to, to take in, but thank you both for being with us today. Thanks thank for having for us having here. Us. Uh, Dr. Ambrusco, tell us about sickle cell disease. A lot of people probably have heard of the disease, uh, but don't really understand what it is and its traits. Sure, sure. Um, I'd be glad to. Uh, it is a blood disorder, and it is an inherited blood disorder. So it's genetic. So you are born with it. You have it. It's not something that you can catch later in life. It's not something that is contagious by any means. You're born with it. And it is a blood disorder affecting the protein inside our red blood cells called hemoglobin. And unfortunately, it makes those red blood cells change shape, break apart too fast, and clump up in our uh, blood vessels. And that can lead to, because blood goes everywhere, that affects every organ system in the body. And the most classic things that come to mind when you think about sickle cell disease is these incredible episodes of pain because you're getting blockage of blood flow to areas of your body. And because of the early effects um, in the body, especially on the spleen, patients are at incredibly high risk of life-threatening blood infections. And this disease, uh, at least in the United States, is more commonly found in, in African-Americans? Yes. Why is that? So. Um, <clears throat> to go into the science of it a little yes. bit, there is uh, malaria is a horrible disease that affects so many areas of, of the world. And people who carry the trait for sickle cell disease, not the disease itself, but the trait, have a survival benefit. Meaning if you have two people who both get malaria and one is unaffected and one has sickle cell trait, the person with sickle cell trait is more likely to survive. And over you know centuries and, and millennia, those people would then survive more and then, of course, have children, and then that's where you get the disease. So areas of the world that have malaria is where you tend to see sickle cell disease, most predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa. So majority of people in the world and in the United States um, uh, with sickle cell disease are in the black community. However, the third most common country is actually India where you see sickle cell disease. Um, but you can see it in South Asia, the Middle East, Southern Mediterranean, but mostly in people of African descent. And, and how long have you been working on this? Um, I, so I started working um, specifically in sickle cell disease during my fellowship training um, uh, in pediatric hematology oncology and really fell in love with that end of the pedi pediatric hematology um, care um, really 
finding a, a, a bond with a lot of our patients with sickle cell disease and just the being able to know that I can maybe help their lives in some way, shape, or form because they struggle so much um, on so many different levels. Um, it might be one disease, but there's such a huge spectrum of how much this disease can affect people. What improvements have you seen over the course of your work? So when I first started out, there was really only one FDA-approved medication for sickle cell disease, and that's the way it was for a couple decades. Um, but even with that one drug, which initially was used a bit more limited, um, we now use it in so many patients, called a medicine called hydroxyurea. So just that one medication alone, expanding its use, starting it in babies as young as six months old, um, has been life-changing for, for those with sickle cell disease. Um, it, it's a medicine to help the disease be better, but it's not a cure. Mm -hmm. Now we at least have four FDA-approved medications in the United States to treat sickle cell disease um, and to make the disease better, um, but the it, but none of them are obviously a cure. Where do you find uh, that challenges still exist? So that that is where the the cure question comes into mm -hmm. in, into play. Um, even though those medications were not a cure. Um, bone marrow transplant has been around for quite some time, actually, for sickle cell disease, but with potentially high toxicities depending upon the patient. And also the biggest issue with that is finding a donor to be able to have somebody be cured of their sickle cell disease, but having to find a donor in order to do so. Um, but obviously that brings us to this day and age where we finally have the holy grail in sight with gene therapy for sickle cell disease. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, we're going to, get back to that in a little bit. Juanita, I want to I want to bring you in. You've got a you got a very interesting story. Um a very great story. Um can you can you tell us a little bit about about yourself? Sure. My name is Juanita McLean. I'm sorry. I'm so used to introducing my name. And um <laughs> I have been living with sickle cell my entire life, of course. I was diagnosed with sickle cell SS um, as early as six months old. Um, been living with complications since that time. Um, I know my mother said my earliest crisis was when I was about six months. That's how she found that I had it. Um, and I believe my childhood growing up with sickle cell disease, um, it was very difficult just dealing with a lot of the complications um, with different infections and of course the pain crisis. The pain crisis are very, very um, debilitating crisis that um, are unexplainable. Um, we, we always say crisis, uh, sickle cell crisis, but they really have a, a really strong meaning to them because these crises, uh, they impact you like in all areas of your life. Now, is that, um, when you talk about a sickle cell crisis, that, that pain, does it just come out of nowhere? Yes. Out of nowhere, I can be fine, perfectly fine one minute, and then maybe five minutes later, I can be in pain all over my body. Um, and it's just due to that lack of oxygen, lack of blood flow. Um, and oftentimes, our bodies, they, they begin to sickle, but we don't notice it's happening mm -hmm. until it's too late. So, like, you're already probably in that crisis stage, you know, the pain is already there and it's nothing you really can do about it besides take your treatments or, you know, ER visits, things like that to help you um, feel better. But oftentimes you can have crisis that lasts for either one day or you can have crisis that might last for weeks or a month. And that's really remarkable. I mean, 
I couldn't imagine having to, to to deal with that on a on a daily basis. How how has your management of sickle cell of the sickle cell disease um, changed since since you know you were six months old? You're, you're an adult now, obviously. Mm-hmm. How is that? Has it morphed in any way? It actually has a whole lot. Um, I just believe that me suffering so much as a child led to me wanting to be a lot more knowledgeable about sickle cell and just wanting to know how can I do better? How can I not go into so many crises? And I've always loved to write. Writing became my outlet to helping me um, just get out those feelings that I felt um, about being in so much pain my entire life. And um, I just feel like writing helped me cope. And I started to feel better after I um, started to share with people mm-hmm. um, because oftentimes we find that sickle cell warriors, we don't share our stories. We don't tell people that we have sickle cell. We keep it to ourselves. It's kind of like this secret disease, you know. Um, so once I started to f- feel more, um, like just be vulnerable and share my story um, with other people and let them know like what sickle cell is and how it's impacting me, it, I felt like it helped me change the mindset that I had about the disease, and with that change of mindset became better health for me. Um, it, it, it has been over a year since I had a sickle cell crisis, and even before that, I was um, only in a hospital maybe once or twice a month compared to my younger years or teens and 20s when I was in a hospital maybe like five and six times a year. So what does that, that mindset look like right now, today? Um, just really positive and just knowing that I can do anything regardless of this disease, just staying in that positive mind frame. And um, I, I believe that leaning on my faith, I mean, I know everybody doesn't believe in God, but I believe in God and I lean on that faith and I pray all the time and I just try to stay positive in everything that I do. Anything that comes in my mouth, I want it to be a positive outcome. So I have to speak that positive life into myself. You mentioned you're a writer. Yes. An author. Um, one of the books you've written is called Stepping Stones. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Yeah, Stepping Stones came from um, every sickle cell warrior goes through losing some type of organ, right? Whether it's our spleen, our gallbladder, some, t- some type of organ. When I was 11 years old, I lost my gallbladder due to gallstones. And, um, so stepping stones came from me wanting to bring out the awareness of how sickle cell affects the organs. And so I wrote stepping stones and the character, she basically goes through um, a scenario with her, her, with her support system, which is her mother and her faith. And she tries to manage and cope living with sickle cell while also dealing with this other situation, which was having those gallstones and having to get her gallbladder removed at such a young age. So that's why I wrote Stepping Stones, because I know that so many warriors can relate to that because they probably have gone through the same thing. And and why do you call yourself a sickle cell warrior? Because I fight every day. I fight every day. So I feel like a warrior. I feel like I'm, I'm fighting you know, to live every day. So that's that's pretty much what warriors do, right? They fight to survive. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And you you mentioned that, that, you know, you find writing therapeutic, you find strength in that. Is there any anything else where you find strength is I know you've got you've got two boys. 
Actually, uh, three boys. Three boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, you find strength in them? I, I definitely find strength in my children. They keep me going. Um, when I'm down, when they know I'm like in a sickle cell crisis, they're very helpful. They keep my spirits lifted. They try to be, you know, just as helpful as they can. I just love that. And me just seeing them, seeing me when I'm hurt, like their reaction, things like that, it, it motivates me to want to get up, not live in that pain, not live in that moment, and just like fight through it so that I can be the strength for them and myself. The two of you have a have a pretty darn good relationship. How <laughs> yes. did that start? Um, well, when I was about 16, 17, we were losing our doctor, Dr. Grossi, and I think Dr. Ambrusco was just coming in. Um, I was a resident. You, then at yeah, that time. so he was a resident, and they introduced me to new doctors that I will be moving on to. So transitioning over from um, pediatric to adulthood, Dr. Ambrusco was one of those in the meeting. And um, he's he works really close with my doctor, Jennifer Abelis. And so um, when I wanted to start like a support group in a nonprofit, I went to Dr. Abelis and, and Dr. Ambrusco and I let them know what I wanted to do. And they were very helpful. And like Dr. Ambrusco mentioned before, we had quite a few different people and meetings and things that we went through before to try to get these nonprofits and groups started and things kept falling through but we kept going we kept fighting for it and even though um I ended up starting it all on my own but I just feel like Dr. Ambrusco was always my support and when I needed information or when I need you know help with a certain situation that's who I can go to because he he's just very supportive to the sickle cell community so we needed somebody like Juanita in the community um like like she uh, mentioned, there was always some interest in really forming uh, a, a community group, a community-based group for sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. Um, but for somebody to really kind of take the reins and just go with it, we needed somebody with Juanita's passion and energy, and, and, and that's what she's done. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, as I've reflected on, too, one of the things with a lot of conditions, but I think with sickle cell disease more than any other condition— you need support that's not at the hospital. While obviously on the medical end of thing between you know myself and nurses and nurse practitioners and psychologists and social workers and all of that stuff, if I say, hey, let's do something to support our patients, mm-hmm. it's coming from the medical field. It's coming mm-hmm. from the, the healthcare area. Mm-hmm. And that's where sickle cell patients don't wanna be. They don't like going to the hospital, and Mm -hmm. who can blame them? They're going to the hospital when it's at their worst. So having that place, that that place for support and and safety and education on the outside of the medical field, um, as well as getting it from the the healthcare field, is so crucial in being able to have that. And and, uh, with sickle cell disease also, um, there's a lot of stigma with sickle cell disease. So being able to commiserate with other people who are going through it is so crucial. Um, it's, it's, it's a rare disease, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, if you, like, like you even said at the beginning, most people may have heard that term before, but they don't really know about it. And, and even in the, the community that you see it in, even in the black community, people have heard about it, but they don't always really know about it. Or they may say, oh yeah, I know one person who has it. So, if you have sickle cell disease, you're oftentimes feeling alone in it, um, even within your family too. So being able to talk to not just one person, but 
several people mm -hmm. who are also going through the same thing you are is so meaningful to know it's not just you and also to take strength in other people and seeing hey if that person who has this disease even worse than than i do can can really carry on and fight as a warrior as mm -hmm. Juanita appropriately said is just so beneficial to our patients who really do need all of that understanding of disease to to just go and do what they need to do in life and i want to talk about sickle cell warriors a little more in just a bit, but uh, Dr. Ambrusco, talk to me about developing relationships with patients on your end. All of my patients are my kids. Um, <laughs> I, I, I may have two kids at home, um, uh, but I also have uh, about 150 children at the hospital. <laughs> Not all there at the same time, but, um, but all my sickle cell patients are my kids. Um, it's just understanding this disease and understanding that a lot of people, even with I wouldn't shouldn't say even though, especially within the medical profession who do not have a great understanding of sickle cell disease, and it it can be much maligned, um, a, a lot of prejudice, a lot of misunderstanding about what sickle cell disease is, and knowing that, you know, I'm the first person in the medical field that they're meeting when these kids are two months old, and mm -hmm. these families are struggling with this diagnosis that they get over the phone. Um, and not just a diagnosis that's, oh, you, this is something that you take a medicine for. This is a, a, a life sentence of sickle cell disease. This is what you have for the rest of your life. And, and so you really have to bond with patients to get the trust. There can be a lot of mistrust in the medical field for various reasons. Um, and you see that a lot more even within the sickle cell community because of the way that many sickle cell patients get treated, um, especially when they seek emergency care, um, especially for pain. Um, and, and so being able to have somebody that they trust, that's just as crucial to, to me mm -hmm. to, as writing a prescription for penicillin as it is to making sure that that patient trusts me, that that parent trusts me. Um, and really making sure we have a team that has that. Um, thankfully, now at, um, at, with our program at Roswell and Children's, um, we have a really great team um, uh, with uh, um, our nurse practitioner, Taylor. We have a psychologist, Taryn Saracena, who's fantastic, and a new attending physician, Katie Carlberg, who's joined us. Who, It's, it's nice to have a great team because we need a good team to be able to take care of these patients, and that's what they deserve. So we've got, you know, the, the medical community, and then we've got the sickle cell community as, as sickle cell warriors. Tell us a little bit more about that. So the sickle cell warriors, um, <clears throat> we're a small nonprofit, um, small group of people, and we focus on that education and awareness piece the most because if people are aware of the disease, of their status, their sickle cell trait status, um, and things like that. Um, sickle cell can be, I wouldn't say prevented, but they will be aware of what it is they're getting themselves into. So we need to make sure that our um, community is aware of this disease. And then education, educating our warriors on what it is they can do to have better health, to live better every single day. Um, so when we do our support groups and our other like programs, transition programs and things like that, we make sure that we give our warriors that support and that trust in us that they can talk to us about anything because 
like Dr. Ambrusco said, we have stigmas um, in sickle cell. And so when, when patients are going to these ER visits and um, or getting admitted in the hospitals, there's things that they go through that they want to discuss. They need people that can relate or that can help them through those type of situations. And I feel like we just we provide as much support as possible. Um, and then not only just providing a support and education, but we also work towards um, just building up as a community in general and just being stronger as a whole. Um, do you, yeah. do you, pardon me, um, yeah. how often does this group meet? We meet once a month, but we all, we give our patients opportunities. I mean, not patients, I'm sorry, our warriors opportunities to just reach out whenever they want. So um, we have a community health care worker on our team who reaches out to families at least once or twice a month to make sure they, they don't need for anything. We provide any resources they might need. Um, yeah. And how do you raise awareness to the to the general public? To the general public, we do a lot of events. We've been hosting um, a sickle cell awareness walk. We're on our sixth year this year um, at Delaware Park. And then we also celebrate for Sickle Cell Awareness Day, which happens every June 19th. Um, we make sure that we invite the whole community out er, to each of those events. But we also make sure that... Um, we we reach the community by going out in the community, supporting those community events, you know, getting our face out there, getting the information out there um, as we are, you know, talking to the general public. Yeah. Collaboration. Lots collaboration of collaboration. is key. Yeah. So recently in the news, uh, the FDA approved uh, two new gene therapies that are being called a, a cure for sickle cell disease. Um how these uh, treatments affect patients at Roswell Park? Um, so obviously, it, as you mentioned, it, it was literally just FDA approved uh, in, in December, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. And not just one modality, but two different modalities. Uh, it's conducted in a similar way, but there are two different techniques of doing it. Um, the as I mentioned before, bone marrow transplant has been available for sickle cell disease, but with the limitation of finding a donor, um, as well as some of the, the complications that happen because the donor is different than you. The donor rea cells react against you or yourself rejecting the donor. Um, gene therapy uses your own self, your own stem cells as your source. So you, you don't have to look far. That's you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so a, a patient would be um, have collection of their own stem cells, have those stem cells be genetically altered in one of these two ways. It still is a bone marrow transplant, but you're getting the, the preparative regimen with chemotherapy medicines and then getting your own stem cells, just genetically altered ones, putting put back into you. Um, so a lot of the complications that we've seen with bone marrow transplant for sickle cell disease are become a non-issue with this method, which is fantastic um, and life-changing. So um, it, as you can imagine by my explanation, it's it, this isn't something you can be like, oh, great, that sounds fantastic. Let's start doing it tomorrow. There's a lot of things to get in place because this is a pretty complex um, technological effort um, working with the two um, companies that provide these two different modalities for gene therapy. So we at Roswell Park um, and Oshai, our program um, there, 
we are actively working now with both companies to be able to have Buffalo be the first um, center in upstate New York to be able to provide these two, both modalities, uh, which is going to be fantastic to be able to offer for our patients and families. And that's, was that the reason you and you were, you met with uh, Senator Tim Kennedy? Yes. Release of press release yes and Juanita was there as well too um, as well as uh, one of my colleagues uh, uh, Dr. Conwell Malhi who's a director of our pediatric bone marrow transplant program um, because this is done in the context of stem cell therapy and you we were talking before this that there is even new uh, news yes yes um, so as you and I were discussing before yes. so one of the 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 kickers to this great sounding gene therapy is the price tag. Um, as you can imagine, with this kind of technology, it's incredibly pricey. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that when you hear the price tag for this costing you know, upwards of $2 million to do this for one patient, mm-hmm. I think the flip side always need to be considered. That sounds like a price tag, but then you hear what Juanita said before, and that comes with a price tag on somebody's life. Not to mention the fact that just a lifetime of care for sickle cell disease itself can be actually quite expensive, not even including the um, productivity that can be lost when somebody's in the hospital all the time um, and not able to work or not able to work as much as they would want otherwise. Um, I think all of that needs to be thought of. So what just literally came out in the news just a few days ago is that the um, um, uh, Biden-Harris administration has put forth an initiative through the Department of Health and Human Services that they that for um, gene therapy that sickle cell disease is going to be basically the the harbinger to be able to to put forth um, effort in getting coverage for gene therapies down the line. This is not isolated to to sickle cell disease, but sickle cell disease really is the first big one to have impact for gene therapy like this and to say this is the future and we need to look into covering it and what better way to do so than with sickle cell disease. Um, here in New York State, the the first step that we're going to need to do what Senator Kennedy and I had spoken about with Juanita there was that in order to get anything really covered, it needs to be um, reviewed by Medicaid. Um, uh, so we need, and that's obviously state based. So we need New York State Medicaid to look at this to understand the cost but to understand the cost of not doing it and really take that into account with, with covering these, uh, the, these therapies that are literally life-saving for people. What's, what's the length or how much time would that process take for, for Medicaid to take a look at that? I don't know, but hopefully short. <laughs> um, but uh, short when talking about you know governmental action um, is, uh-huh. is a relative scale. Um, we really are truly hoping to be able to get this looked at, though, um, and uh, to get it approved um, and to get this up and running within the year. Um, uh, you know, this is FDA approved to to take a long time to think about this potential cure that we're going to. To, if you're going to otherwise shelve it, makes absolutely no sense to somebody right now. When I see a patient, and and I sense this happened in December, I can't even tell you the number of patients who have said, hey, Dr. Ambrosco, have you, have you heard about this gene therapy thing? What does that mean? Can we do that here? And I, have that discu- I had the discussion a handful of times just this week alone. Um, so be, to be able to have that 
not acted upon is a travesty. We've got a few more minutes left. Um, I want to, I've got one last question for, for the both of you. Uh, Dr. Ambrosco, what, what's next for you? Um, really being able to get gene therapy up and running. I mean, this, uh, when I talk to a family and I give that first call at, you know, when the baby's only a week or so old and having to tell them about sickle cell disease, now we're in a new era where I can hopefully say, your child has sickle cell disease, but we have something out there to cure it um, and to be able to work on that. Obviously, we also need to focus on keeping patients healthy. In the meantime, this therapy right now, at least, is only approved down to age 12. So I have to do my best to keep that kid alive and healthy and well and functioning and, and happy um, during that time. Um, so Working with my transplant uh, colleagues on the stem cell, uh, stem cell area, uh, transplant area um, is crucial, and thankfully we have a very good team at um, Oshai and Roswell to be able to do that. Um, and again, not every this isn't going to be therapy for everybody. Not everyone has to do it. Not everyone has disease that's severe enough to have to warrant this, you know, expense and level of therapy. So there are going to be patients who have sickle cell disease and it's not cured. And they're going to need health care, and that's what I'm here for. So, it's, but it's reassuring to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, absolutely! It, especially if you end up having pretty bad disease, um, to know that there is something you can do other than just here take some pills. Hopefully, the disease doesn't progress too quickly. Mm-hmm. And Juanita, what's mm-hmm. next for you? Um, what's next for me, I believe, is um, just growing in the sickle cell education area. And then we also have a goal for an infusion center where sickle cell patients don't have to always go to the emergency room. They can just go to the center and get the treatment that they need within a few hours and go back home um, because patients rely on blood transfusions and things like that. But you have to go to the ER to get those things. But if we had an infusion center dedicated to sickle cell patients, they can get treatments faster and they won't have to um, be in a hospital long term and it can save everybody money right Mm -hmm. time lots of things so that's a goal for our um, community and where can folks find more information on sickle cell warriors they can find more information on sickle cell warriors buffalo by visiting our page at sickle cell warriors buffalo.org or they can go on find us on social media we're on facebook and instagram um I think that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and this has been What's Next. I want to thank my guests, Juanita McLean and Dr. Stephen Ambrusco. We'll be back with more What's Next after this. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. For this installment of What's Next, we went to Washington, D.C., to the Rayburn office building, where we were scheduled to speak with Brian Higgins on the second last day of his 19 years in Congress. 
Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm Jay Moran from WDFO. I'm ah. here to see the congressman. Sure, one moment. How are you today? Good, how are you? Arriving early, we sat in the congressman's cozy waiting area. A few feet away, CNN was on a large television monitor. First, viewers were given a look inside a hearing taking place just across the street. Mark Zuckerberg was fending off a senator's questions about the dangers of social media. The screen then turned to another Capitol Hill hearing, where FBI Director Christopher Wray warned how hackers in China have the capability to disrupt public systems in the United States. All reminders of the heavy issues that dominate the congressional ecosystem. Hi. Congressman Higgins. Hey, how are you? I'm well. How are you, sir? Thank you very much. Good to see you as well. We were warned the congressman's time might be limited, uh, yes. that he might be called away at any minute to vote on committee matters. Well, the conversation went for nearly two hours. Edited for timing constraints, Higgins had a lot to say about a lot of topics. He swept through the Pan-American exhibition, the truth of theater, ancient Greece, and more. We would chronicle the rise and decline of Buffalo's economy dating back to the 1901 Pan-American Exposition. And at that time, Buffalo was the eighth largest economy uh, in the entire nation. Uh, we had architects, uh, Daniel Burnham, uh, uh, Richard Upjohn, uh, Louis Sullivan, uh, Henry Hobson Richardson, uh, Louise Bethune, the first female architect in the United States. They weren't from Buffalo. They came to Buffalo because Buffalo had exuded a, a, a confidence and had a financial strength to say to these creative people in the arts, architecture is the most important art form that you can get your vision, you can get your creativity turned into something real, something tangible. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright uh, came to Buffalo in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, Louis Sullivan, uh, one of the great architects who designed the Guarantee Building, uh, fired uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, not out of, uh, because of lack of talent, because of lack of humility. <laughs> uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, you know, uh, characterized himself as the greatest architect that ever lived. Uh, he didn't compare himself to other architects. He compared himself to Leonardo da Vinci. He, 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 uh, he compared himself to Beethoven because he believed that the, the, the art of architecture it was a very similar process. It's creative. You're plotting, you're planning, you're building toward the goal of creating something that's tangible, but something that is intangible as well, and that is you know, an imagination in the people uh, that, 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 that enjoy that architecture. And that's why architecture is a very rare art form because uh, it defines us as a city, uh, because we live in it and amongst it. It defines us as a civilization. People don't realize how unique Buffalo is in that regard. And then I think in the, the 1950s, the decade of the 1950s, the Niagara Redevelopment Act, uh, the opening of the St. Lawrence Seaway, uh, um, uh, excessive uh, 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 superstructure expressway building, which facilitated uh, you know, the leaving of wealth from the city to the suburbs. That was a tough decade and a changing world economy. Uh, while we were still making steel at Republic and Bethlehem Steel, which employed 28,000 people at the height of the Vietnam War, uh, the Japanese and the Germans were learning to make steel with new technology that was stronger, lighter, cleaner, uh, and cheaper. So I think after the 1960s, 70s, 80s, Buffalo developed an inferiority complex. 
which, which, which was in direct conflict with the can-do spirit of the early 20th century. So I think part of my job was to rebuild the collective confidence of the community because consumer confidence individually and collectively is a big part of our economy. Um, and I think that Buffalo kind of developed an inferiority complex where it believed that its fate as a city was determined by external forces over which it had no control. Wide right, no goal. Um, and, you know, Buffalo got screwed again. Looking back on 19 years in office, Higgins is proud of his work on a number of issues, but at the top sits the change on the Buffalo waterfront. He was more than ready to discuss it all, including the agreement with the New York Power Authority that secured $300 million to help fund waterfront projects. What basis did you have to push for this larger settlement? Where did that idea come from? From being a student of Buffalo's history and a teacher of it. And the Niagara Redevelopment Act of 1957 basically took all the power that we once had to be in Buffalo and Niagara Falls to use and spread it throughout New York State into seven states outside of New York. So it was having taught uh, that as a part of Buffalo's history. But I also knew that it had to be presented in a different way because you couldn't talk about megawatts and kilowatts, kinetic energy and physics. You had to talk about us versus them and just developed a narrative, a storyline, if you will, that said, you know, the reason the New York Power Authority has an Niagara Power Project, which is the cash cow, by the way, of the entire uh, energy producing portfolio of the New York Power Authority, uh, why is it that it's here? It's here because of the natural resources of Western New York, a lake that fed a river whose water was diverted that produced the cleanest, cheapest electricity in all of the United States. And that's why the Pan American Exposition was held in Buffalo, because we learned through, uh, through physics and kinetic energy to move the power to Buffalo and to give us electrified streetlights. And I used to say, you know, why is it that everybody is making an economic claim to our natural resources? Let's look by contrast, contrast at Florida. You know, the, the license plate says the Sunshine State. <laughs> Everybody comes back and says nobody pays taxes in Florida because all the tourists are paying. That's the, because they're utilizing the climate, the unique natural resources of Florida, an abundance of sunshine, beautiful beaches, et cetera, et cetera. And we're not making an economic claim to Florida sunshine. Why is everybody making an economic claim to us? So for me, I was a freshman in the minority. I had to be aggressive very early on because if we lost the opportunity, it would be lost forever. The 1957 Niagara Redevelopment Act gave the New York Power Authority a 50-year license to own and operate the Niagara Power Project. It expired in 2006, and it was a relicensing that really nobody was familiar with, and I was only familiar with, because of a student, because I'm a student and teacher of, of Buffalo's economic history, that was a big piece of it. So I understood, to a degree, the intricacies of all of that. But the one thing that everybody understood, the powerful impact that that had on us historically and could have on us prospectively. So while 
Uh, my leverage, by the way, was uh, the New York uh, Power Authority to get a new 50-year license to run the power project in Niagara Falls. Uh, had to be approved by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So I was meeting with the chairman in my office here while you know people were fighting over what was really nothing. You know, the Power Authority offered a million dollars to the city and the county, and they were in a rush to get a new license or a license renewal before anybody figured it out. And I just asked the chairman and members of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to test my assumptions. Uh, there was a section in the Federal Power Act, Section 9, that said the applicant for a new license or, or a license renewal had to provide the local host community, Buffalo Niagara Falls, with a mitigation settlement uh, in the renewal. And I had argued that the availability of low-cost hydroelectricity in the earlier part of the 20th century drew industry to the waterfront, the river, uh, the Lake Erie shoreline. And because there were no regulations, they dumped their toxic chemicals in the water. They polluted our air. They polluted our land, thus laid a basis for a mitigation settlement. I filed a bill seeking a billion dollars, and it was nothing compared to what Buffalo and Western New York deserved. But because of the political nature of these kinds of things, we ended up settling on a $300 million settlement. I want to tap into that student of government for a second, if I could. And I thought about this and I thought you'd be an interesting person to get an interesting answer from now that you're departing this body. Ger gerrymandering or redistricting. Yeah. How it has insulated certain districts, and I'll point to the Chris Collins, uh, New York 27, I think in 2018, yeah. just after he got indicted, and there was no way he was going to lose in that district because of the way it was set. There was no debate inside that, that district, none whatsoever. Yeah. Is that process, as it goes around the country, and you know it, you know better than I do, is that hurting that kind of debate that now you're, like, what you're seeing here in, in Congress uh, among the 435? Yeah, well, it, yes, it does hurt it because you have you know, members of Congress from the other party regardless of whether it's Democrats looking at Republicans or Republicans looking at Democrats, they look at their colleagues with blind incomprehension. And because we don't know each other's stories, you know, and gerrymandering is certainly a part of that. When I first won the seat, uh, I succeeded a moderate pro-labor Republican by the name of Jack Quinn. Uh, Jack and I are, are great friends today. Uh, and it was good because you know, it was it was marginally democratic, but he could win it. So the competition was really about your policy objectives. And as I said at the outset here, I didn't. You know, I think the the the, the job of being a member of Congress is different from you know, from the from most others when you're the Buffalo congressman, because of the vast needs of our community, infrastructure investment and. And, and those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, I think it's when those districts are more competitive, you take less of a partisan view and more of a practical view about something. And in the end, you know, government is really about problem solving. 
and you may have different uh, philosophical or ideological views, but you know human nature never changes. You know that's why we study the great uh, philosophers and theologians uh, of 2,000 years ago. That's why Shakespeare is still relevant today after over 400 years, because human nature never changes. It's about love, it's about hate, it's about revenge, it's about jealousy, it's about all of those things. It's human nature. So Congress is a very complicated, large public institution, the largest in the world. Therein lies the incentive to be able to get along with your colleagues on the other side. How about uh, in the current congressional body? Not, the, not, not a hero, but somebody who you just uh, admire. Well, greatly. Richie Neal is a is a very close friend, and he's he's a congressman from Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, in Western Mass, not unlike Buffalo, uh, an industrial city that had an old train station. I mean, a lot of the similarities mm -hmm. in Buffalo. But what I love about Richie, in addition to you know his his loyal friendship is that he is, he is, he has tremendous integrity. And he's an old school politician. He doesn't chase the spotlight, the, ch the spotlight chases him. He's chairman of the most, was chairman of the most powerful uh, committee in the House of Representatives. But a guy that you won't see on the Sunday talk shows every day. He is a workhorse. He is committed to doing the right thing. Uh, we meet, you know, I'm a member of the committee uh, uh, until tomorrow, <laughs> uh, but the Ways and Means Committee, as I said, it's the oldest committee in the House, the most prestigious committee in the House. Uh, eight presidents, eight vice presidents, 22 speakers of the House, and four members of the United States uh, Supreme Court came from the House Ways and Means Committee. But you won't hear about him unless you are a congressional watcher. What you do hear, who you do hear about, are people that are making names for themselves because they're making fools of themselves. They're making uh, spectacles of themselves. Uh, yelling in the back of the chamber when the President of the United States is delivering the State of the Union address. Uh, these are people that, again, weaponize political differences to monetize it for themselves. They're not helping their constituents. They are, they are promoting common fears and in common hates. That's not a community, that's not a nation. And the people like Rich Neal and others that have the discipline to, to say, look, I'm not gonna be caught up in all of this. I'm gonna be a workhorse, I'm not gonna be a show horse. Uh, that's admirable, that is admirable. And these are the kinds of people that will study. You know, I first learned about Rich, I used to tell him all the time, we're very close friends, but I used to say to him, uh, Richie, before we became friends and colleagues, I used to read about you. <laughs> because he was very involved with the Northern Ireland issue as well. And, you know, comes from a very proud Irish, Irish heritage. You know, you come here, you've got choices. You know, you can be uh, a flamethrower. You know, you can look at all the tweets and the, you know, the exes that, that follow you. And you can try to go to the house floor, beat the hell out of somebody weaponize an issue because you get in the elevator, you check out your tweets and you got 155,000 of them and they're contributing to you because you hate the same people. Mm. <laughs> and that's where, you know, the whole idea of, of you know, a, a scarcity mentality, 
um, friend to enemy distinctions and a zero sum game for, for, for if you win, I lose, or at least in my mind, I lose because you have that scarcity mentality. And that, that's not good for the country. And, and, and it just puts us in a downward trend. And I think, you know, we're kind of stuck there right now. I do believe in the resilience of democracy. I'm, I'm very, very um, uh, optimistic. And I think it will come back. But right now, you know, our, our country is in a very tough spot. Um, and we're very, very much divided. Uh, you know, there's not a majority that is, that is supporting one direction versus another. And I think the shame is that Congress has contributed too much to the misinformation that's out there. Uh, you know, uh, I sit there and, you know, listen this morning. Uh, I'm on the Budget Committee and the, the, the Ways and Means Committee. To my, my friends and colleagues on the other side talk about how America's in decline. I don't know where the hell you're living, but not in my country. America's not in decline. America's growing, and it should be growing better. And if there wasn't political dysfunction that has been identified by rating agencies that evaluate the creditworthiness of the United States, we would be doing even better. But despite it, we grew at 3.1% last year. And we're doing that with at least one hand tied behind our back. For my kids, you know, for everybody's kids, for grandkids, you know, you really say that your objective is to create a better future for them? You know, I come from a family of union bricklayers. Um, you know, my dad, uh, you know, bricklayers lay foundations, you know, literally and figuratively. Uh, my dad was here when I was sworn in as a member of the United States Congress. And that was a beautiful day for him. It's not my story. It's not my story, it's his. And it's his father's, it's his mother's, but it's the story of America. And that's the story that we have to get back to. And I think that's what's being overlooked. Any uh, advice for your successor? Uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Tim Kennedy is a great friend of mine. Uh, he's going to be the Democratic candidate. Uh, he's a wonderful kid. Uh, guy with, uh, you know, he comes from the neighborhood. Uh, I, know, I know him, I know his parents. Uh, uh, I think he, you know, he's been a part of my political life. I think he understands and he's concluded for himself what works and just the importance of not forgetting home. <laughs> the, the literal meaning of home and the you know, the general meaning of home. And, you know, that's what people expect from the member of Congress from Buffalo and Western New York. Fight for your community. And I, you know, have enjoyed great bipartisan support throughout the years. And I don't think that's because everybody believed 100% and agreed with me. But I think they understood the effort was sincere. And I think that that conveys itself to people and we're all, we all want the same thing. We all want a good life. We all want a good city. We all want a good region. So I think, you know, my successor will clearly recognize, you know, the importance of the fundamentals from which we have built and we will continue to build a better community that's more inclusive and more equitable. Two more questions. You yep. can take them as long as you want. Um, First one is it's a serious political political question. 
Is President Biden going to be reelected? I hope so. Um, you know, I've traveled with him. I've spent private time with him. You know, he's a wonderful man. And if anybody questions his acuity, uh, you know, he is as sharp as they come. Uh, I traveled to Ireland with him last year. Uh, he was very generous with his time and his uh, enthusiasm. Uh, we come from, our families come from the same county in Ireland, Mayo, and we were in a town called Bellana. Uh And he said, hey Higgins, I understand that you came from bricklayers. I said, yeah. He said, well I came, my family, they were brick makers. He said, uh, I think the bricks your, my family made, your family laid. <laughs> uh, you know, he's a, he's a guy who, who his life was shaped by tragedy. You know, he lost a, a young wife and a, an infant daughter in a car accident. His two other surviving kids were, 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 were severely <clears throat> injured in that car accident. He overcame a debilitating stuttering problem as a kid. He survived two brain aneurysms, which were life-threatening. So, you know, going back to, you know, we suffer our way to wisdom. Uh, wisdom cannot be obtained by a book or an institution. It's by what life puts in front of you. And it's that suffering that I think has given him the wisdom uh, to have a larger vision for America. And what I don't understand, and I, you know, I have great faith in the American people, um, you know, the economy got knocked around during the pandemic, uh, but it's recovered, you know, lo very low unemployment rate, uh, uh, higher than average economic growth, uh, uh, business investment, uh, stock market, uh, you know, everything is trending up where it wasn't two years ago. Uh, so I hope that he will be rewarded with, with uh, 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 being reelected. And I think once the choices are clear and what those choices represent, I think that people will conclude uh, what, what I have been fortunate to observe up front and personal, uh, that he's a good man. He's a good man. And then the final question, another prediction of sorts, that last day in Congress for you, what's going to be going through your mind? Tomorrow, it's, you know, I'm beginning to pack up. I'm, I'm, I'm just looking forward to getting back to Buffalo. Hmm. Leaving here, I leave with a great sense of satisfaction. Uh, and there's also something to be said in politics to leave on your own terms. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for my family, my community, uh, and this great country. Congressman Higgins, thanks very much. Thank you, sir. Brian Higgins, last Wednesday in his Washington office, on the second to last day of his 19-year career, as a congressman representing Western New York. And while it was edited out due to time constraints, he also expressed excitement over his new role as president and CEO of Shea's Performing Arts Center. During another stroll through history, Brian Higgins called theater, quote, the essential art form of democracy. And looking back to ancient Greece, he pointed out how it was the theater that gave rise to democracy. Political theater, as it is now performed in Congress, according to Brian Higgins, is about, quote, a bunch of clowns. This has been What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.